Well, good morning, church. Good to see you. Good to be with you as we continue in our study in the book of Isaiah. And uh, opening illustration, it's interesting. I, I just saw Jesus' revolution last night, and, and, and I had this illustration in place before I went to that movie. But when the 1960s ended, San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district reverted to high rent, and many hippies moved down the coast to Santa Cruz. They had children, they got married, though in no particular sequence. Their names for their children were seen as rather strange. People in the mountains uh, gathered around Santa Cruz. They began to grow accustomed to their children playing with uh, Frisbee with someone named uh, Tiny Warp or Spring Fever. And eventually Moonbeam and Earth and Love and Precious Promise all ended up in public school. And that's when the kindergarten teachers first met fruit stands. Every fall, according to tradition, parents bravely apply name tags to their children, kiss them goodbye, and send them off to school on the bus. So it was for fruit stands. Teachers thought the boy's name was rather odd, but they tried to make the best of it. Would you like to play with the blocks, fruit stand, they asked. Later, they said, fruit stand, how about a snack? He accepted hesitantly. And by the end of the name, his name didn't seem much stranger than many of the others in that classroom. At dismissal time, the teachers led the children out to the buses. Fruit stand, do you know which one's your bus? He didn't answer. That wasn't weird. He hadn't answered them all day. Lots of children are shy on the first day of school, so it didn't really matter. The teachers also had instructed the parents to write the names of their children's bus stops on the reverse side of their name tags. The one they'd been calling fruit stand all day was the place where his bus stop was located, at the fruit stand. They turned the name tag over, and there neatly printed was the name Anthony. Anthony. What's in a name? What's in a name? Did you know that John Wayne's real name was Marion Michael Morrison? You can see why he went with a different stage name. And Western country singer Conway Conway Twitty's real name was Harold Jenkins. I think I would have stayed with Harold Jenkins. What's in a name? Do you know that there are over 38,000 Jim Smiths in America? And I understand there's a Jim Smith annual fun fest where thousands upon thousands gather together. And they just love it and crack up when they, they call out Jim Smith and everybody's head and turds and they think that's funny. And one of the highlights of the Jim Smith Fun Fest is a softball game in which everyone participating, of course, is named Jim Smith. Even the umpires are named Jim Smith. And they get a big kick out of it, announcing each batter by saying, and now coming to the plate is Jim Smith. Of course, every batter is Jim Smith, and every fielder is Jim Smith. What's in a name? What's in a name? Well, turn with me in your Bibles, if you're not there, to the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, as we continue in our sermon series on why are we here. This morning, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9. And so go there to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. And today, as you heard it read, we come to a list of throne names for the one born in Bethlehem. 
Now, typically, Isaiah chapter 9 is a go-to uh, scripture for the Christmas season. I think a few years back, I did go to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. I'm sure you remember it very well. Well, as we look at the passage today, we must remember that when it was written, Isaiah stood on his tiptoes, looking down the corridor of time, waiting for this child. And what was hinted at in the previous two chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 8, of the coming Messiah is now given more details in this chapter, as well as what we'll look at next week in Isaiah chapter 11. All right, let's look at Isaiah chapter 9. And before we get to the familiar uh, verses of 6 and 7, uh, let's see the context of those words. My first heading this morning is Brighter Days Ahead. Brighter Days Ahead. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that the team to beat at the time Isaiah prophesied in uh, chapter 7 and 8, the team to beat was Assyria. Assyria was a tool in the hands of God to humble the people of God. We see that here. In their defeat to Assyria, the people found themselves, however, in a very dark place. All right, let's look at chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he, meaning God, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Now, geographically here, and this is, is important, Galilee is in the northern part of Israel. And when Israel was invaded in Old Testament times, it was always from the north because they were hemmed in by mountains and the sea on the east and west. And so armies came in from the north to invade Israel. And as the armies would go through Galilee en route to invade Jerusalem, they would stop in Galilee take all their food, wipe out all the people there, take the, the women and children as property, and then burn whatever was left. That's what they would do. Surrounding nations and, and people around them considered Galilee cursed. Certainly nothing good could come from Galilee. Well, these people in Galilee would be the first, he's saying here, uh, to feel the ominous trampling of Assyria, they would be the first to see the new light God would shine on Israel. Now, hang on to this location. We'll come back to this in a moment. But verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Now, remember, Galilee was viewed as cursed. They were seen as a place of death of hopelessness, distress. These are very dark times for the people in that land. These are very dark times for, for Israel and for Judah. Politically dark, economically dark, spiritually dark. People were walking in darkness. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. In restless dreams, I walked alone. Do you know that feeling? D distressed, perhaps, today about, about being alone? 
Do you, do you know what darkness feels like? Not, not, not the darkness when you experience when you walk into an empty room without any lights, lights on. Not that kind of darkness. But a darkness, perhaps, of a pain that just won't go away. Maybe darkness over some guilt or, or regret that's in your heart today. Maybe it's, maybe it's the darkness of broken dreams. Darkness of, of circumstances that just seem out of control and that's spiraling down. Or maybe your darkness this morning is just life is not what you had hoped for at this point in your life. Darkness touches all of us at one time or another. And church, many today out in the world, all around us, are walking in darkness. Darkness. Many today are worn out and lonely and restless, and just looking for some hope, just looking for someone to speak into that. Reminded of a, of a businessman who was on the road away from his family for two weeks, and he was feeling kind of lonely and worn out. He stopped into this rundown-looking diner for a bite to eat. And the waitress asked him, what would you like? The man replied, I want some lasagna and a few kind words. I want some lasagna and a few kind words. Well, the waitress walked off, and soon she returned with his order. She set the lasagna in front of him and turned to leave when the businessman said to her, hey, what about my kind words? The waitress leaned down close to his ear and whispered, don't eat the lasagna. <laughs> don't eat his kind words. You kind of need to know that at that point, right? See, as we move about in this world... There, there, there are many who are beat up over, with the harshness of life. Why are we here? Minister to them. Why are we here? Speak into their darkness. There are many who desperately are looking for some help to handle life. Beth Moore gave this picture. She said, we each have our unmet needs and we carry them around all day long like an empty cup. In one way or another, we hold out that empty cup to the people in our lives. We say, can somebody please fill this? Even a tablespoon would help. She says, when we seek to have our cup filled through approval and affirmation, control, success, or immediate gratification, we're miserable until something is in that cup. You see, everything this world offers is incapable of filling that cup. Everything this world offers is incapable of solving world problems. That's why it's dark. It's unable to give you what you need to handle life. And yet people everywhere are looking for some light in the midst of their growing darkness. They want a way out of their darkness and they'll take whatever they can get. Paul Simon goes on to say, and the people bowed and prayed to the neon God they made. I want out of this darkness. People walking in darkness with that emptiness in their souls and their hearts, that vacuum that's there, they'll do almost anything to get out from it. We're going to see that again when we come to Isaiah chapter 50, I believe. But it's going to talk about this darkness and how we want to just get out of that darkness. We'll do whatever we can to get out of it. But suffice it to say now, what are some things in the darkness that people can turn to? Well, they can turn to mediums and they can turn to fortune tellers. They can, they can, some reach for pills and some reach for the bottle. 
Some hope to find an answer perhaps even in religious activity. Is there even any hope for that? Is there any light to see us through the darkness? Well, God has given Isaiah here certain insights that speak of a time when deliverance from the darkness would come. And it's said in a way that it is certain to happen. But I want these words from Isaiah to speak into wherever might be some darkness in your heart today or the darkness that you need to go, that's out there that you need to speak into. Embrace the God of hope, the God of new beginnings, the God of greater possibilities, that there are brighter days ahead. People want to hear that. Well, who's the light? What is their hope? Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. But the, but the people respond to this promised deliverance with great rejoicing. There are brighter days ahead. Verse 3 now, Isaiah 9. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. They're rejoicing when you get that bonus check. You know, they're rejoicing when you get this trophy for some accomplishment. That you, they're rejoicing, they're saying here. And then he goes on. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders the rod of their oppressor. And undoubtedly, they would be thinking physical oppression here. People were in physical bondage to a foreign nation, and they promised deliverance. Now notice with me the reference, it's in verse 4, to the battle of Midian. That would have resonated with the people in Isaiah's day. They would have understood this reference because they knew their history. And and when he mentions Midian, it's going back to, and you can check it out, in the book of Judges, in the time of of Gideon, in chapter uh, 7. And you might recall, perhaps you know this true account, that that God's deliverance of his people from their oppressors at that time were the Midianites. And Israel, you might recall, had an army of 32,000 men ready to go to the battle. I mean, you, can you ever have too many soldiers when you go to the battle? Well, God thought they did, so God did some downsizing. He brought that number of 32,000 down to 10,000. If that wasn't bad enough, God then downsized it some more to a mere 300 men to go to war against the Midianites. He went from 32,000 to 300 men, and they defeated them. But why did, why did God seemingly weaken Gideon's army? I mean, why would God ever take away strength in numbers? It looks rather foolish to the human eye to shrink an army of 32,000 to 300. Why would God do this? So that God gets the credit. So that God gets the credit. God's deliverance doesn't need to follow some human methods. God showed them that he was the one who would deliver them from their oppressors. And if God's doing the fighting, 300 men will do. And so the word of encouragement to the people uh, Isaiah is, is, is speaking to is that just as God had delivered in the past with 300 men, God would deliver them now. And for the people of Judah, things were dark. They were gloomy. It seemed to be in the hands of the Assyrians. So Isaiah reminds them and reminds us, history was in God's control, the present's in God's control, the future's in God's control. Don't be discouraged. And as we're going to see in a minute, the ultimate future deliverance would be found not in 300 people, but in one person. One. 
People of God in Isaiah's day were in great distress and darkness, but a bright and beautiful day awaits them. What is at the heart of this hope for future? Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. God's answer to their distress, God's answer to everything that threatens us, God's answer to our darkness is a child. We come to the birth announcement here. We come to the birth announcement in verses 6 and 7. You know, back in 1969, when an American astronaut climbed down a ladder and put his feet on the surface of the moon, the President of the United States said that this was the greatest event in human history. With all due respect, he was wrong. The greatest event in human history was not when when man put his feet on the moon, but when the Almighty God came down and put his feet on planet Earth. That's the greatest event in human history. We call that the incarnation. Coming of Christ is not an idea or or concept, an event that took place in history, in time, space. Isaiah goes on to provide the explanation for their hope. This is not the birth of any ordinary child. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And it will be called Wonderful Counsel of Mighty God, Everlasting Peace, Prince of Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, before we look at each of these names, I want to connect verses 6 and 7 to what we saw earlier back in verse 1. As we saw in verse 1 here of Isaiah 9, it mentions the land of Zebulun and, and, and Naphtali. And Isaiah then speaks to a future day, you'll see at the end of verse 1, when God will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. Question, where did Jesus begin his preaching ministry? What part of the world did Jesus begin? Well, in the New Testament, it tells us in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, it says of Jesus, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Huh, what a coincidence. Well, Matthew removes all doubt by then saying the very next verse, Matthew 4, 14, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And then it quotes the verses we just read and Isaiah written roughly 700 years earlier. You see, Jesus arriving and living in that region was to say, the one who rules on David's throne is here. I am your light. Now we move our eyes to the birth announcement in verses 6 and 7. Now I want to read verse 6 again. It's just so powerful. And this time include verse 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, don't think government as we have it today, think kingdom. The kingdom will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, he goes on, verse 7, and the peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Will this happen? Next verse. The rest of this verse. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It will happen. Now, no earthly king could fit this description here in these verses. And verse 7 says of this king, there will be no end. 
This prophecy must go beyond any king in that day or any human king to come. But do you see it? The child is the explanation for everything the prophet is saying in the first five verses. This child to be born is the explanation given for why we can be hopeful. All our hopes hang on this child Isaiah talks about 700 years prior to Jesus' arrival. What an amazing promise given to the people then and now. And we read these words here in Isaiah 9 and we wonder how in the world did the people in Isaiah's day Miss the, the obvious connection to the Messiah. I mean, it all seems rather clear. We need to be a little gracious here. It's like seeing a movie with a twist ending and then going back and seeing it a second time. Right? I remember years ago seeing the, the movie uh, uh, The Village. The slight twist at the end, rather disappointing, but a surprise ending of sorts. And to see that movie a second time, you'd see things you didn't see before. And you go, ah, now I get why. And that's what they were pointing. Oh, I get it now. Right? And you, you know, there's movies like that for you. I don't know what it is. Sixth Sense or Illusionist, Inception, Sherlock Holmes, Signs, whatever it might be. To see it a second time, now knowing the ending, you look at it differently. We know something the people in Isaiah's day did not know. We know the ending. We read these words on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus. We then start to see all the connections. Okay, so what's said of this child? Middle of verse 6 tells us, he will be called. You have to, by whom? Who's going to call him that? The language suggests, in my opinion, that it's God who's calling him these names. It's coming from God. He who humbled is God back in verse 1. Verse 6, he who's calling him, I believe, is God also. And he's calling this one born in Bethlehem, years, 700 years later, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. What's in a name? These names from the lips of God, they have great significance. Four names were given to describe what God would do through this child. The child's name, we might say, is kind of a job description. So let's dig in a little bit on these four names, these four descriptions of the Messiah. First of all, we have Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Now, describing this deliverer as a counselor would not be unusual. Counselor was a rather common office in the ancient Near East. All kings would have counselors, advisors around them, advisors, counselors who would assist the king in giving direction, making plans. And so we do the same. We look to people to give us direction, but we must be careful from whom we take direction. Someone quipped, a wise person seeks much counsel, a fool listens to all of it. Don't listen to all of it that's out there. But we all need counsel in our lives. One who never seeks counsel is an accident waiting to happen. The Messiah to come here, Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, doesn't need to look to others for advice and counsel, others to help him make plans. He is the source of all wisdom. He is a wonderful counselor. More accurately, it should be translated the wonder of a counselor. The first word, wonder, qualifies the second word, counselor. 
And so this wonder of counselor would come into a world that is dark, a world that does not have the wisdom it needs to deal with the problems of life. And Jesus, the embodiment of wisdom, provides you with everything you need to handle life. He's able to, to, to give you direction. He's the one who, who wants to make plans for you in your life. So we take a step back and we must ask the question, do I go to him, do I seek him for direction? Or do I go to everybody else? Do I go to him to seek direction? Do, do I go to him for the wisdom I need for today, for right now, for this situation. What's in a name? He's the wonder of a counselor. Secondly, it says he's the mighty God. You see, it's one thing to have wise counsel from someone, but that person may not be able to do anything about your situation. See, it's another matter completely to find the wonder of a counselor who is also competent and capable to do something about your situation. You know what I'm saying? So as the wonder of a counselor, he makes the plans, but the mighty God, he makes the plans work. Right? So if somebody can give you plans, that's helpful. But God, mighty God, can actually make those plans work, that which lines up with him. You see, the word for mighty here uh, can, can mean hero or champion. We, we, we love our superheroes. We do. It might be Iron Man or Superman or Batman or the Avengers, whatever it is. And the movie industry keeps producing these movies because we just can't get enough of them. I kind of say stop, we're all set. But they just keep, 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 keep pumping them out. And in, the, and in the movies, every superhero needs someone or something big to conquer. In fact, movie makers put as much thought into the villain as they do the hero, because without a really good villain, the superhero doesn't seem so super. Well, in the real world, in the world in which we live, Jesus came into this world to conquer the biggest enemies of all, sin, death, and the devil. And in conquering sin, death, and the devil, Jesus showed that he is the mighty God. Only God has the power over death. And Christ, the resurrected one, will accomplish all that he sets out to do. He is, let's bring it down to personal here. He is the mighty God. He is the mighty God who is bigger than your biggest concern right now. He is the mighty God who can deal with all the stuff that life throws at you. He's bigger than that because he's the mighty God. Now again, in keeping with our context, remember the location spoken of in verse 1. Galilee was a cursed spot in Israel's history. Galilee. It was not, Galilee was not a place where you would where take your family for a vacation. It was, not, it was not the place for good times. It's, it's that dark spot, Galilee, that became the ground zero where this child, the Lord Jesus, the mighty God, would place his feet. It's the starting place for the gospel to go out and spread. Galilee. Who would have thought it? It'd be the last place a leader would go to promote his cause. Yet that's exactly where the mighty God set up camp. Because only a mighty God can show up to a place like Galilee and redeem it for the greatest news ever to be proclaimed. That's, that's encouraging. Because that's what God can do in my life. That's what God can do in your life. Your brokenness, that situation that seems beyond repair, 
that problem that, that you've tried to resolve through all different ways to kind of help this and fill my empty cup and do this, do that, whatever your drug of choice is, and it only makes matters worse. Jesus is the mighty God who can conquer that. He is the mighty God who can deliver you from it. I'm not overselling this. It's who he is. What's in the name? He's a wonderful counselor, wonder of a counselor. He's a mighty God. Thirdly, he is the everlasting father. He's the everlasting father. Now that title there, father, might be a little confusing at first pass. We don't often refer to the second person of the triune God as father. I need to give you some background. In ancient Near East, a ruler or king was often viewed as a father to his people. You see it a lot in the Psalms. And what does that suggest? It suggested protection. In the same way, this child, the Lord Jesus, would be the people's protector. He would care for his people. And everlasting speaks that this is, this is not just a temporal rule of care, it's permanence. As a father, he cares for you. He's seeking you. There was this Quaker family who lived in Pennsylvania. And against the father's wishes and his family's beliefs, the son Jonathan ran off and enlisted in the cause of the North during the Civil War. Time passed and there was no word from Jonathan. Well, one night the father had this dream that his son had been wounded in action. He was in distress and he needed the care of his father. And so, so the dad left the farm. He went to where the troops were. He asked the commander about his son. And all the commander could tell him is that there was this heavy action earlier in the day and many had fallen wounded. Some were being cared for, but many others were still left out on the trenches. The commander gave the dad permission to go and try and find his son in this mess. It was dark, so the father lit a lantern and, and, and he headed out. And the light fell across the wounded young men, some calling for help, but, but many too seriously hurt to even cry out for, for help, for assistance. How would he ever find his son among all those wounded and dying? Well, he wouldn't give up. The father swept back and forth across the battlefield, stumbling over body after body to the point of almost despair. So he began calling out, Jonathan Smith, your father seeks after you. Jonathan Smith, your father seeks after you. And he kept calling out, Jonathan Smith. And more than once, he could hear a soldier, a wounded soldier say, oh, I wish that were my father. He finally heard a faint, barely audible reply. He said, Father, over here. And his son was found. Listen, that's our God. That, that's, that's Jesus. The, the everlasting Father is seeking you. He continues to knock on the door. He continues to call out to you. He's calling your name. You need to answer that this morning. Everlasting Father. Lastly, he was called Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Does peace describe our time? And the times in which we live today. <laughs> peace. I mean, when you, when you look in the eyes of people you pass by each day, do you see peacefulness? I don't. There was a four-year-old and a six-year-old. They presented their mom with a beautiful bouquet of flowers for Christmas. 
They'd used all their own money to, to buy her this special gift. And the mom was just absolutely thrilled with the flowers. And then she noticed a card attached to it. And the card said, rest in peace. <laughs> well, the older child spoke up and said, well, mom, we thought this was the perfect gift for you because you're always asking for a little peace so you can rest. Right? And it made sense to them. He's called the Prince of Peace, who someday will end all wars and conflicts, divisiveness and racism and prejudice and fentanyl crisis and school shootings and the hate and chaos in the world today. He'll come and he'll end it all. There will be peace to come to all. But the question is, must we wait until we pass from this life to find that peace until we got rest in peace? Finally. Do we have to wait for that? I mean, is peace attainable in, in this life at all? Well, in this world you'll have trouble, Jesus says, but I have overcome the world. And then in John 16, Jesus goes on to say, so that we, we, we can have, he's overcome it. Why? So that in him we may have peace. Peace. Peace missing? Missing in my life? wrestle with this. I mean, would you almost do anything to enjoy just a little peace? He's called the Prince of Peace because where Christ is, peace reigns. Is he reigning, ruling in my life? Is, is there some area in which I need to invite him in, the Prince of Peace, because I'm all worked up. That's not of God. The darkness in this world isn't really about, listen, the darkness in this world really isn't about incompetence of our leaders. It isn't really about our economic inequity. It isn't really about our inadequate policies. But that we have drifted from the Creator's design. That's what it's all about. That's why there's darkness. Elster Begg said it this way about this passage, verse 6. He says, we have ignored the maker's plan, wonderful counselor. We have rebelled against his power, mighty God. We have rejected his paternity, everlasting father. And we have distanced ourselves from his peace, prince of peace. It's into that darkness God speaks to us through his son. He is the wonder of a counselor who can guide us with the wisdom of God. He is the mighty God who has the power to break those chains that have been on you all week. He is the Father who cares for you with a love that never ends, who keeps seeking you. He is the Prince of Peace whose peace really does transcend all circumstances and conflict. As a brother said to me last week who's going through a lot of hard stuff, he said, I really have a peace. I believe him. It's possible with the worst scenario in your life. Still learning it, but it's there. And church, we're here to spread the good news of this one born who wants to step into their darkness. And Jesus is the only one who can give us what we need to handle life. So what is it? What is it you're hoping in will give you self-worth? What is it that you're hoping, with, hoping in to help you handle life? What is it? If it's anything other than Jesus, 
That is darkness. And it will desert you in the end, and it will disappoint you along the way. Christ came to do something you can't do yourself, and he will not disappoint. He will not, he will not desert you. This time of all kinds of chaos and darkness going on around us. In the 2015, 2015 San Bernardino shootings, 27-year-old Denise Peraza came out of it as survivor. Her life was spared, not because the shooters saw her and turned the other way, but because of a valiant man named Shannon Johnson who shielded her body with his own and saved her life. Listen to her recount the situation in a very dark time when all was going on around her. Wednesday morning, she said at 10.55 a.m., we were seated next to each other at a table joking about how we thought the large clock on the wall might be broken because time seemed to be moving so slowly. I would have never guessed that only five minutes later, we would be huddled next to each other under the same table using a fallen chair as a shield from over 60 rounds of bullets being fired across the room. She says, well, I cannot recall every single second that played out that morning. I will always remember his left arm wrapped around me, holding me close as possible next to him behind that chair. And amidst all the chaos, I'll always remember him saying these three words to me as he held me close. He said, I got you. I got you. See, always, no matter what, remember those three words. They're three words God gives to you, not just in time of need, but all the time. When, when, the, when, the, when the world seems so dark, Jesus is, is our light. And whatever happens, no matter how disturbing it may be, he says to you, I got you. I got you. I got you. You're safe in his presence. The powerful name of Jesus will go with you this week. You can stake your life on it. You can stake your life on it. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. Whatever it is that we need to Take a hold of, embrace, and grasp, and apply. May you personalize it that way this morning, because only you can do that. May we rest in the wonderful promise of who you are and what you came to do, to be the light in our darkness. And now you call us to be that light in a dark world. That's why we're here. May we spread that. May we embrace it ourselves. So we find all that you want to be to us to be true. Guide us in that in this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.